fascinating gadgets, gizmos, and gear-based technologies. Welcome to another episode of Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies. This is the show where we take your favorite fictional science and technology and make it a reality. We do that. We are the Brain Trust. I am the analytical mastermind, Daniel J. Glenn. With me, physics phenom, Dr. Michael Denon. Great to be here, Dan. And, you know, I'm really pleased that you picked this movie because I have vague childhood memories of it or, like, teenage memories of it, you know, depending on how you phrase it. Um... But it was really fun to rewatch again, and it held up. I really liked it. But my favorite part was seeing all my favorite '80s actors in random roles as side characters. Yeah, this one this one has a lot of uh, great cameos. I mean, this is a really fun movie. Um, but we got someone who's embedded inside, deep undercover, and that is our enigmatic engineer, Ben Seepser. Ben, where are you broadcasting from this week? You know, this week, Dan, I'm in the quaint town of Kingston Falls. And there's just these adorable creatures here singing some wonderful carols. I don't know. I don't. Every, this all seems very trumped up. I don't know what could uh, possibly be going wrong here. What could possibly go wrong indeed? Well, I'll tell you how this episode came to be. Not that it is wrong. But Denon, you talked on the, on the last episode about how we've done the Gremlins before uh, on our Goonies episode. And we hadn't. And, that, you know, we had to make good on that promise, Denon. But I'm glad that you did because that is the only time I've been painted into a corner and wanted to jump up and paint the rest of the room, uh, which is a ridiculous metaphor. But I'm excited you did this. Well, I'm glad I did it, too. And, and just so the audience knows, it wasn't a total mistake on my part. We had practiced with the Gremlins. So we had discussed it. Just the world did not get to benefit. It from our great insights into it, and now they will. No, that's true. And we also did a fascinating fights, Gremlins versus Ghoulies, which is arguably one of my favorite fascinating fights episodes of all time. And also, you guys, of course we have to do this because the main character's name is Gizmo, and it is fascinating gadgets, gizmos, and gear-based technologies. And there's a bunch of gizmos that happen, which we're going to get to later on. But, you know, one of the th biggest shockers in this movie was there was, an, you know, the guy who plays, the actor who plays Data, Kei Huai Kwan. I, I, this, to me, he was one of my favorite child actors. I just thought he was so funny. He had great timing. He's in The Goonies, which is a Spielberg movie that we talked about. He's in The Temple of Doom as Short Round. It was kind of surprising to me that the beginning of this movie took place in Chinatown. There's a small little Asian kid who could, this, you know, Mr. Kwan could have easily played that child role. I was shocked they didn't go with him because he was such a good little actor. Uh, did, that, did you guys even notice that at all, or was I the only real fan of this guy? Well, I have to say, Dad, this was not actually something I noticed out of my radar, but now that you point it out, I understand why you are the analytical mastermind. I just thought it was a perfect role for him. I wish I could go back and recast it because I think he would have brought more to it. But also, you know, you got Corey Feldman, who's in Goonies as well. I mean, he could have been a little recast. Anyway, I will go on. What could have been is what I want to tell you. Um, but you, know, as I watched this movie, one of the things I want to get into right off the bat here is Randall Peltzer and all of the, Pel the, the, the wide array of Peltzer innovations. Uh, I love this guy. I love the fact that the main character is an inventor. And, you know, we've got an engineer on our team. But I wonder, Ben, have you ever been an inventor? Uh, not of physical gadgets. I, I have some patents that are in process at the moment, but it's all for, uh, it's mostly for software and more virtual things rather than physical gadgets like these. 
I will say this, Dan. Yeah. I tried to be an inventor. Um, I tried to build a laser as a child. Um, when I thought my laser device was actually starting to laze, it was really just weird reflections of the sun in the glass tube I was using. <laughs> so that was a failure. Um, I did not at the time understand how little CO2 was in your breath. Um, mm -hmm. I was trying to make a CO2 laser out of my breath, um, a clear flaw in the design. I also didn't realize how poorly sealed anything I was doing was. Um, but I had the basic idea of mirrors, a tube, and, and, and a gas. Um, I also tried to invent a light, as we've discussed in a previous episode, that failed miserably when I didn't understand insulation. So it was these two <laughs> failed inventions, I think, that led me into physics. Uh, no, I think that that's probably the correct path for you. And I got to tell you, I invented a couple of things growing up. Um, for some reason, I had some Thundercats action figures and some um, battery acid had dripped on them. So in an attempt to clean it, I, m I mixed up soap and water and thought that that was a brand new cleaning solution. I um, was wondering, why my family didn't want to patent it immediately. Uh, I was very, very small at the time, obviously. And also, it, when I was in middle school, I used to take apart pens, you know, ballpoint, uh, not ballpoint pens, the little mechanical pens, you'd push the, the, the little metal thing on the back and the pen tip would come out. You know, that consisted of a weird little plastic thing in the back and then a spring. And I was able to take that spring and load it with that little plastic thing in the back and I could create a little gun. You could like shoot that little plastic thing out across the room. I was very excited about that. But that that's really the end of my my inventing days. Um, but th those were not the end of the inventing days for Randall Peltzer, who I think probably started off very similar to the way we did. And I love his catchphrase, which is fantastic ideas for a fantastic world. He makes the illogical logical. And I feel like we kind of do that, guys. So when you were watching this, I want to know what your favorite inventions of his were. Denon, I'm going to ask you first. It was, it was a close, close tie for me, Dan. I, I was leaning towards the thing he's trying to sell, the entire uh, movie, the portable, um, you know, bathroom kit tool thing. The bathroom um, buddy, you know, Denon. The bathroom buddy. The bathroom buddy. I know I was having trouble with the name. Sorry, Dan. <laughs> the bathroom buddy. I, I like the, the sleek design. I like the fact that it reminds me of... Um, a lot of the converters I've bought to go to Europe and plug into the wall and, and get the different electricities out in its general shape. And, of course, I like that it shoots toothpaste, a fundamental foam-based object. But I'm not going to go and shaving with cream, the bathroom buddy. And shaving cream. And shaving cream, yeah. yeah. I'm not going to go with the bathroom buddy as my favorite because it's a subtle one. When we first um, get Mowgli home, we've got to turn down the lights and we use a remote control for the lights that has a very long antenna. And I like this because it shows <laughs> where we've gone from the 80s to now. In the 80s, our only transmitting devices pretty much were all radio waves. And the length of an antenna is r directly related to the length of the wavelength. And radio waves are long wavelength devices, hence the long antenna. But now we've mastered the microwave realm and everything has short antennas. And so the fundamental physics in that and its short moment in the movie, I really like that. And it was apparently the only device that still seemed to work because it did actually successfully turn down the lights. That is true. And before I ask Ben his question, I want to I want to do this early on, but I don't want to keep our audience waiting for my shameless plug for Fascinating Nouns, my other podcast. The Bathroom Buddy is about saving time when you're packing, when you're when you're trying to when you're on the go and you're traveling a lot. I did a whole episode on the art of traveling light, how you can go anywhere for any length of time with just a carry-on luggage. Uh, it's a great episode. One of the key episode, one of the key points to that 
is powdered toothpaste. Uh, just to give you a little a little teaser there. Uh, ben, so what was your favorite? Being our inventor, you know, I imagine you've got to know which one of these were probably the most viable with a little bit of tweaking. What was your favorite, Ben? Well, I, I got I to gotta question Denon's uh, suggestion there that none of the other gadgets worked because clearly the Peltzer Gremlin Blender works. Now, obviously, that's not its uh, real name, but uh, the device that uh, the mom uh, uh, grinds the gremlin in, that one seems to work really well. It looks like a kind of an open bowl blender of some sort where it looks like you could put like salad or something in there and it would chop it for you maybe. Um, that looks like a really great gadget. And from what we can tell, it works because that gremlin sure got uh, chopped up. Well, I would call it the Gremlin Grinder or the Peltzer Pulverizer. It just spitballing. Those would be my my suggestions. Those are the Peltzer Pulverizer. That's a good one. Well, my my concern with that device, I, I agree, it basically worked. It still sprayed stuff everywhere, Ben. So it does need a spray shield. You know, I bet it has a lid, and she just, you know, in the heat of the moment, she couldn't get to it. <laughs> well, I, you know, I went a little mundane on this. I I really loved his fly swatter gun. And I would just, I think the key to that is when it's fan, it, you know, it kind of spins out like a fan. I think the way, I love the idea behind this. I think it's it's very vital in a place where there's a lot of flies running around. But I'm going to make a small little design change. I want to see if you guys think it holds up. And that is kind of making it like a clapper. I don't know if you guys remember the, you know, I remember when I was a kid, you used to have little plastic, you know, clapping hands. You'd push a button and these little hands would clap. I think if you designed a fly swatter that was similar to that and you kind of, you know, almost in a chopstick, you know, Mr. Miyagi fashion, the way he was catching flies. I think if you can use that same idea except have a big fly swatter, I think you really got something on your hands. Uh, what do you think about that? You know, um, Dan, I really like it. I, you had me going in a different route, though. I was I was thrown. When you said the clapper, I was thinking of the thing you turn lights on and off with. And I'm, I wasn't sure why you needed a remote fly swatter and where you would set it up. Like, why clapping your hands, then the fly swatter goes. But where you went with it, the actual clapping of hands, I do like that design. Okay, good. You mean the clap on, clap off, clap on the clapper? That whole uh, yes, exactly. I'm gonna put. I'm gonna find that commercial and put it up on the website. <laughs> I love that. I love that commercial. Um, so you know, one of the things here. Last thing before we go here, there's an artichoke powered speaker on the, uh, in this movie. It's a subtle little thing. You got to really watch this movie to find it. Um, ben, before we move on, I want to know: Did you see that? And do you think that would work? I did see it. Um, I mean, conceivably, any any vegetable with that has like some juice inside of it with uh, different metal probes could theoretically make a voltage and therefore power, um, you know, a uh, a speaker or some other small low power electrical device. I mean, I think though he'd be better off with a potato or a lemon, like we see in our modern. Uh, electrical toy kits rather than an artichoke which is not a artichoke which is not known to be a very uh, juicy vegetable <laughs> i have to go with ben on that and also dan i i really wonder why this artichoke was vibrating the way it was um, i'm not sure why it would be going rocking back and forth um i think it would just kind of sit there and 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 do not much yeah perhaps it's something entirely different where there's like a one of those little Maybe it was a vibrator motor was in there for like a cell phone and he was really inventing something crazy new there that, you know, we just don't know about yet. 
But what's hooked up to a speaker? We don't know what kind of music it was playing. Maybe, maybe it was artichoke-friendly music and he was bebopping to the beat. I want to tell you really quickly, the first time I had an artichoke, you guys just reminded me of this. I had never had an artichoke before. A friend of mine roasted it and said, hey, here, take a bite. And it was a full artichoke, right? So I bit into it, not realizing that there's very little difference between an artichoke and a cactus. <laughs> Punctured the top of my mouth and was like, what? Who eats this? What are you talking about? And she's like, oh, you pull the leaf off and you eat the inside. And uh, that was my introduction to artichokes, uh, which is a very painful one, but one that I will never forget. And uh, there's one thing that we will never forget, and that is the Peltzer Pet, which is a great name for the Mogwai, aka the animal that Gizmo is. And what I love about this, this is an entirely new breed of animal, and it has very strange characteristics we're going to get into. There's three fingers. I had to look it up. This animal has three fingers. It asexually reproduces. This is a truly, truly genderless animal, which I think is, as far as the evolution of animals go, that is kind of um, a very important point, which we're going to talk about later. And it's it has a pupil stage as a seeming mammal, which I thought was kind of interesting. Um, what were you, what was your first thoughts about the mogwai, uh, Denon? I'm going to ask you first. Well, it's interesting. I, I really like the the connection between water and sunlight. Mm. Um, if you think about those as the two really core elements of what brought about life on the planet. Um, you have water causing the the spawning of new ones of these, but you have sunlight melting them. And it does make me think about, um, was this really uh, a creature that came about through natural evolution? Because how would you evolve um, on, on a planet where half of the time you would just melt? Um, right. Versus some sort of genetic engineering that went on. That was my first thought. That's where I was going. Um, ben, how about you? Where were you going with this? Yeah. No. So there's a lot of there's a lot of evolutionary questions about the Mogwai. Um, I could imagine the the light. I could work that out. You know, we have uh, underground dwelling animals that stay in their burrows all day long. You know, that part I'm not too concerned about. Uh, what's really interesting to me is the water. Because as far as I know, there aren't any animals on this planet that don't drink water to survive. Mm -hmm. uh, water is the lifeblood of our, um, of our, of our entire uh, ecosystem. Without it, nothing works because water is the universal solvent of life. Uh, that is what carries nutrients. It, what, it's what uh, enables blood to be liquid it, it's all these things so it's really interesting to have an animal that uh that uh spawns when it gets wet um now i could explain this with you know if it's afraid of sunlight if it's if it spawns when it gets wet maybe it's a burrowing desert animal so you know it it stays underground all day long because it's too hot out during the day and it only breeds during the rainy season. Rainy season, like many animals, there are many animals and plants in the desert that um, basically go dormant whenever it's dry. And then all of a sudden, when there's a rain, you know, you see the flowers bloom, you see the seeds come out. You know, this all happens very quickly uh, during a quick rainstorm, and then it all goes away again. So you could imagine these creatures. You know, they come out for a night shower, um, they breed, and then they all go back and hide in the tunnels again. 
So the, if that was your first thought, that is an incredibly comprehensive first thought when you saw this movie. I, I am very impressed. <laughs> oh, that is pretty incredible. Well, the first when I saw this, I, I thought to myself, evolution does some pretty crazy things. Depending on your environment, that is what you know. What, what the the unique situation, the unique environment, is how you evolve to be perfectly suited for that environment. And we look at extremophiles, which can exist in the center of a volcano or at the bottom of the ocean. So evolution does do some very weird things. I want to talk about two things really quickly. The platypus. No one knew what to make of the platypus when they first discovered it. It looks like it has a duck bill. It's got a beaver body. It's a mammal that lays eggs. It's got a poisonous spur on the back of its leg. I don't even think we know whether it's venomous or poisonous because it might be bacteria that covers that particular spur. It's a very strange animal, uh, one that I am very impressed with. And also, the star-nosed mole... This particular animal has a snout that is the most sophisticated tactile organ in the animal kingdom. It has 22 appendages. It comes out of its snout, and it almost looks like a crown around the edge. And it's an animal that can breathe underwater and has more nerve endings per square inch than our fingertips. These are the kind of strange animals that evolution has created. So while the mogwai may seem very odd, I don't know that it's impossible but I think we're going to get to our theories in a second. But let's talk about light first. You know, obviously light can be very damaging, uh, the UV light to our skin and to others. But to this level of toxicity, is this possible from a physics standpoint, Denon? Well, I think from a physics standpoint, it is. And, and you know, Ben made some, and you, both you and Ben made some great points about the evolution. So I will retract my statement of evolving to be allergic to sunlight because I forgot about the idea of living underground. I don't know how I forgot that, but you were asking for my first response. Yeah, that's okay. And I was, yeah, you know, that's right. not thinking of underground at that point. But as we've discussed, when we've discussed the very real challenges of vampires um, in previous episodes, um, we know that the sunlight spectrum does contain a lot of um, a wide range of radiation beyond just the visible. UV can be particularly interesting in how it reacts with things. Um, we right now have all sorts of UV um, activated materials. We often are trying to make epoxies, but you also have things that are light activated to break down. Um, and so it's very easy to imagine something in a particular wavelength in the, the sunlight spectrum that, for instance, is not necessarily prevalent in the artificial house lights we make. So this is why you know, lamp light does not kill it immediately. It just gets very upset and frightened by it, whereas sunlight kills it. So there's a lot of interesting physics, biology interactions here that I think can make this work. Um, and ben, you know, with the chemical breakdowns, is there a particular space you were thinking of here that this might work best? Dan, I'm glad you brought up the star-nosed mole because I think that's a perfect example of an animal uh, that you know, can be very damaged if it goes out in the light. There's a lot of these moles and other types of creatures that um, are very evolved and adapted to living underground. And when they get sun on them, you know, they can get very easily burned uh, by that UV energy. Uh, so I don't think it's much of a stretch in that sense that you could get burned really badly. Now, whether or not you would melt like we see happening to Stripe at the end, that, that seems a little... Um, ridiculous, but you could certainly get so burned that your skin kind of uh, sloughs off eventually. And, you know, we see that when people get really bad sunburns. Jesus. Uh, it just, I guess, happens really quickly with gremlins. <laughs> that, is, that is pretty dark. Well, and I think their aversion to bright light 
is probably an evolutionary trait because obviously if sunlight kills them, they're going to avoid bright lights when they can. Of course. Um, you know, I, I think that that's true. So that that seems to be almost the most believable part of this, despite the fact that they are covered in fur, which would protect their skin itself. Um, but but maybe there's some sort of chemical reaction there. Well, let me ask you this, guys. Is, is there a chemical reaction that would create this from a biological standpoint, I've never seen people put salt on snails. It sounds terrible and, and inhumane, but from what I understand, snails kind of melt when that happens. Um, Denon, is there any anything that could be used, uh, anything from that? Well, definitely there's a lot of photochemistry that happens in the world, Dan. And so there are many sort of chemical reactions that can be triggered by light. Um, and that's what I was talking about. We, we tend to, um, people may or may not be familiar with UV epoxy, we tend to do it to make things bind. That's a common trick, right? You have two components and you want them to stay separate until it's time to actually make the cement and you hit it with UV light and then it kind of makes the nice hard cement. Um, but photochemistry goes both ways. There's plenty of examples out there where the, the UV in particular is very good at this. It's the right energy range to cause a chemical reaction, which can also be a breakdown as well as a bonding. Um, and that is, you know, basically what sort of melting from a particular perspective is the breaking of these chemical bonds that hold you together. Got it. Okay. In a sense, when we get sunburns, uh, the UV energy, um, not so much the sunburn part, the sunburn part is because of other things. But, um, you know, when people talk about getting skin cancer from excessive sun exposure, that's because the UV is scrambling your DNA. So, you know, it's it's very obvious that things like uh, excessive UV energy, if you don't have enough uh, protection from those rays, that they can get into your uh, cell nuclei and really mess things up and kind of melt you in that sense. I mean, that's pretty scary. It's scary that this is actually possible. Um, but I imagine for the Mogwai, what's also scary, Ben, you brought this up, is that water replicates them, but there's not an animal that we know of that doesn't require water to survive. Now, is it possible, you know, we see some of the, um, you know, we it, when they're in their um, furry form, we see the 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 other mogwai pop off their back uh, and kind of shoot out into fur balls. And then when they're in their leathery reptilian form, you know, we see a stripe at the end when he sticks his finger in the water, they all kind of bubble like almost like eggs on the, on his back. Is it possible that there are only very specific parts on the body that are, that are kind of reactive to the water and create the reproduction? Um, although I don't know where they would get the mater raw materials from, but we'll, we're going to handle that in a second. Ben, did you see anything like that uh, when you were watching this? You know, that's interesting. So one possible, possibility is, and this kind of maybe goes back to the desert dwelling animal situation of it all, is that, you know, a lot of animals, when there's no moisture in their environment, they get their moisture from what they eat. So, you know, lizards that eat bugs in the desert, they get their, they get a lot of their liquid from the juices inside the bugs. So it could be, and you know, obviously there's water in the chicken bones that the, uh, the mogwai are eating. So it, it's possible that the, these animals are so efficient in their water usage that the only liquid they need is what they get from their food. So they can, they're not allergic to water and they can handle it inside their digestive system. But then, like I was saying before, when they go out and breed in the rain, in, when it's raining, you know, maybe what they do is when they hear the rain at night, they go out and you know, kind of just lay on their backs um, and get their backs wet, and maybe it's their backs that are uh, kind of sensitive to the water and have these spawning receptors from the water. 
I was definitely leaning that way, Dan, when, when, when Ben was r- reminding us of this desert space. I'd forgotten the taking moisture from your food, but I was wondering, uh, a lot of creatures do this, that, you know, you have the buzzards who, whose head is completely clean of feathers so that they can not, so they can deal with germs better. I was wondering if really they could drink water. They were just told not to give them water because of the danger of it splashing, right? Like in the wild, they know how to do this, but they're not very, you know, he, maybe the, uh, the, the gentleman in the store didn't really trust um, their ability to safely, for humans to safely give them drinking water. But I like Ben's answer even better about it, them getting it from the food. I do think it's very clear there's something special about the back. And I was really intrigued in the reptilian form because um, Stripe did seem to be getting wet in that um, fountain before he stuck his finger mm. um, in the fountain. Right. And so clearly, once they're in their reptilian form, there was something subtle going on about the water um, that needs to be figured out. Well, I mean, one of the big questions to me was there has to be some upper limit. I mean, obviously we see um, when they jump into the water, uh, what's also strange is whatever form they're in, that's what replicates. But also, where did the ener- where did the raw materials, the proteins, the lipids, uh, the other chemicals that, that are required for biological life, which is very complex, I think we can all agree biological life is very complex, where did all of that come from to create all of these asexually produced uh, creatures that clearly do not look like clones? Well, I guess they do look like clones in some ways, but when Gizmo gets wet, they're, they're all very unique. They have different personalities, so they can't be genetic clones. Um, this was all very, you know, I know that's kind of a lot, but this, these are all the, the thoughts that were going through my head. Uh, then, did you have any answers for any of that stuff? I really wish I did, Dan, because then I could make a lot of money. But, uh, <laughs> I, you know, I think the, the challenge um, really is the numbers. Like, I could imagine one happening. We, we know plenty of life that buds. And I think as is true with so many of the things we see in these types of shows, um, the basic principle is not that far off, right? You know, having water to trigger some biological reaction in the system that generates a different type of cell division, um, almost like a rapid cancer, but in a healthy way, you're making another life form, not something that's going to invade you that then pops off. You know, the challenge is the timescale in that, right? You would imagine needing to eat a lot of food at that moment to get even more um, material into your body so the budding can be supported. And then once the thing pops off and it's separated from you, it needs a way to ingest and take even more food. So I think this goes back to some things we've talked about in earlier episodes about rapid cloning. It's the speed here more than the, the underlying process that's the problem. And I believe, Ben, you may have even looked at this pool problem in some detail, right, in terms of the total numbers and how that might work. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up because there's, there's a question of how, how much can they replicate. You know, we see in the science that when the science teacher puts a, drop on of, a single drop of water on the mogwai, that's enough to make it bud and create another mogwai. Um, you know, so if, if you extrapolate that one drop equals one mogwai, then one four-lane pool with, uh, with half Olympic length and about four feet deep equals seven and a half billion gremlins. So clearly, there's some other limit because obviously there weren't more gremlins than there are people on the planet that were created <laughs> in this movie. Uh, they would have, you know, that's not happening. So I think possibly there's some sort of situation where 
maybe these creatures are storing up a lot of nutrients in their bodies all the time. And when they get the water, that water, you know, breaks down a cell barrier or something that allows the budding to occur. And they can take that stored up energy and put it into the creature they're, uh, they're going to uh, create. So maybe what happened with Stripe, you know, he's eaten all this chicken. He's probably stolen food from other places. He's probably, you know, kind of bulked up and stored a lot of energy by uh, raiding the town. And then he jumps in the pool and he makes hundreds of gremlins because that's how much energy he has stored. And he has effectively an unlimited supply of water in this uh, local Y pool. Well, now, what about water as a catalyst? You know, I like your one-to-one ratio, but I also saw water as like a catalyst for uh, this particular, for the breeding process to begin, I guess. Um, What do you think about that, Dennis? Well, Dan, actually, you got a little ahead of me. I was going to say more of a singling system, not a catalyst. I like your idea of a catalyst. I like where you went, but I'm going to take it slightly differently. And what I'm going to say is, instead of a catalyst, it's simply a single signal. And that's why the one drop of water starts the process. I, I wonder if the water is not actually really used. goes back to Ben's comment. Um, you know, the rainy season signals to them that it's time to make more of these when they go out and detect the water. And that actually solves my earlier question of why Stripe just puts his finger in the water, right? He's generating a signal. Maybe the leathery form doesn't signal as well in the water, right? The fur... All ever like maybe animals' whiskers. All of the fur are receptors. Mm. So if you get any of the fur wet, that trigger triggers the signal. And I think maybe the reason to jump in the pool is to less the amount of water. And Ben nailed it. It's the amount of energy that Stripe had stored. And so the amount of pool water is almost irrelevant. Um, he probably could have just stuck his finger in and had a whole bunch spawning off. But by being in the pool, I suspect it's more comfortable. There's a comfort level of the water also helping with the process. So I'm going for a signaling system, very similar to your catalyst idea, Dan, but but a slight, slight 30-degree twist on it. Well, and I think that's interesting because, you know, if you're talking about a signaling system, I mean, what better system than the you can't eat after midnight? There, there are restrictions on feeding, right? Which is kind of weird because you would imagine from an evolutionary standpoint, these are nocturnal animals. And they're, they're switching into this other version of the gremlins. But what if it is actually that gizmo is the juvenile stage, they go through the, the pupil stage, and then the, the leathery ver- version is actually the adult stage of the gremlin, which is where I, I think this might be going, this is where it's going, because if you can't eat after midnight, what is midnight? Is it actually midnight? I don't think that it's necessarily a time on a clock. I think it might be just, uh, you know, something under the circadian rhythms or some kind of metabolic processes that that happens after midnight or late at night. Uh, this was really something that that was kind of confounding to me. Uh, ben, did you find anything in this that would make sense to you? Yeah. So from an evolutionary perspective, there's no way it can be time on a clock, right? You know, clocks haven't been around long enough for animals to evolve to that. So there's got to be something else going on. Maybe something astronomical where they can maybe they're gravity sensitive and they can somehow detect the rotation of the earth and eating after a certain time at night a lot that triggers to them there's maybe an abundance of food and it's time to pupate and evolve to another thing or not evolve to metamorphosize into the gremlin form. 
you know, if there's this idea that they there's so much food that they're hunting and gathering all, you know, throughout the night, you know, maybe that's what's going on, you know, but but it's got to be something along those lines, because there's no way um, gremlins in the desert without humans were looking at clocks to figure out when they should eat or not eat. <laughs> I, I also think both of you um, put this very well. You know, this was a human rule. Don't feed after midnight. I think in the wild, they regularly ate after midnight to make it to the adult stage, right? In the wild, um, you're probably a little better off being a vicious gremlin from a survival perspective than being a, a cute mogway, right? So I think this was a natural evolutionary state that if you then wanted to keep them as a pet, you had to figure out when not to feed them. Um, and this after midnight rule has the same challenges. I'm going to make another reference to another one of our episodes, Dan, that a Groundhog Day um, phenomena has, right? When does the after midnight end, right? When, when, when are you allowed to feed them again? Now, it might have to do with sunrise because then, you know, they're, they're being reset because the sun is up and they don't want to be out because it's now dangerous. Um, but there are a lot of challenges with this. And I think the, both you, you, Dan and Ben, you're going the right way. It's either astronomical, it's security and rhythms. It's something that I think is probably late enough that a midnight is a safe rule. Like it's always after midnight that it triggers whatever it is, never before. And so to be safe, you just don't feed them after midnight. But you know, in certain cycles, 1205 would be fine. You just don't know when that is. <laughs> right. Well, and I think it's, I think it's important because the, 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 there's a particular hormone that when it's released, it will trigger metamorphosis. It's called idorithrine. Uh, I'm probably saying I'm butchering that, but it's a specific hormone that is produced that triggers the metamorphosis stage uh, in creatures, in, in insects. I think maybe the food triggers that particular hormone. I don't know. What do you think, Ben? I think that's exactly right. I think what makes sense here is that these animals are nocturnal animals so perhaps after a few hours of being active, after waking up uh, at, at nightfall, they start making this hormone. And then if they eat while they have this hormone uh, coursing through them, that's what could trigger this uh, metamorphosis to start. And so it's really just a matter of don't feed them more than like four hours after they wake up. <laughs> Oh, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that would make a lot. That would make more sense that it would. Cause I think it is a part of their metabolic rhythm. And I do want to mention that you know what's kind of unique about this is cocoons are not really recognized in mammals. I mean, insects do it. Cnidarians, which are like jellyfish, amphibians, crustaceans, lobsters, crabs. They all will have a juvenile stage and then you know pupate into uh, and metamorphosize into a different stage. So that that is it's a very interesting thing that's unique with them. And one thing I want to mention here, just in closing, which I thought was interesting, I'm going to put this article up on the website, is that there were studies done with caterpillars. They were able to figure out through this study that caterpillars retained their memories as a caterpillar when they were butterflies, which leads credence that, you know, whatever happened to the, the, the mogwai when they were in their juvenile furry stage would still carry over into the other stage. I was always under the belief that once you did the metamorphosis, it kind of cleaned the slate and you became an entirely different animal. But that's not true. I found that very interesting. So, guys, I think I have maybe solved the Mogwai problem. I've got a little conclusion here, and I want to let you know what you guys think about this. I think that the Mogwai was a genetically engineered creature that was designed to be the, bio the perfect 
biological pet. I don't know if it's for humans. I don't know where that came from, but they've got, they don't need a breeding facility. They've got a built-in mechanism to keep them juvenile. They've got a baked-in method of being able to easily destroy them when they get out of hand. Uh, the problem is really how intelligent they are. They seem to be very self-aware, almost chimpanzee, bonobo-like intelligence. But also remember, in pop culture, we've got several examples of alien pets coming down from other planets, which include the Audrey 2 from Little Shop of Horrors, Tribbles from Star Trek, you've got The Blob, and of course, you've got everyone's favorite alien life form, ALF, uh, the, that great sitcom. And there's a, you know, there's a connection between plants and watering and light, and I think there's a lot of interesting stuff. So in conclusion, what did you think, Dan, and what do you think about, about that as a possible explanation for the Mogwai? I think, Dan, it's perfect except for one minor challenge. Um, I do like the built-in self-destruct mechanism except for the fact that you have to deal with an entire evening of destruction before you can actually get rid of them if things go bad. But I guess in principle, you've got midnight, they go evil and bad, and you only have, I don't know, half the night before the sun is up. But... Other than that, I, I think I think you're onto something. Well, I will tell you, throwing the, throwing a pet you don't want out in the sun so that it melts is I don't know if that's better, but it's definitely quicker than flushing it down the toilet. Um, ben, do you see any problem with any of this? Uh, yeah, I mean, w one thing I would be curious about is since, from what we see in the movie, the the gremlin rampage only happens overnight. I'm curious if the adult form gremlins uh, know to hide during the day or not. I'd be curious to see if they just uh, stay out in the sun uh, once the sun comes and die anyways. That would be an interesting... Uh addendum to the uh, biology that we don't know yet. Well, they are coming out with a third Gremlins movie. Uh, maybe they're going to listen to this and that will, um, you know, kind of, it's very possible we will influence the future movies. I don't know. It, 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 time will tell. Um, but, you know, we've arrived at our airs edition to the omission section. This is things we wanted to talk about, but we didn't get to. Denon, do you have anything to tie up, put a button on our Gremlins episode? Well, I, I have actually a couple things for this one, Dan. Um, the first... I was just super impressed with the mom. She took out three out of the five gremlins easily. Um, I think she probably would have had the fourth. It had a little bit of an advantage attacking her from the tree. Um, we did have the foreshadowing of the sword constantly falling off the wall when everyone came in and out of the house. But it was one of those moments in a horror movie. She was told to run. She didn't run. The normal thing would be for her to be a victim and die. Um, but instead, she was very clever, used used the blender, the microwave, and uh, a, a butcher knife. Um, and I think going three out of five on Gremlins in that form is a great track record. I also loved um, the girlfriend. I don't remember her name. I apologize. Um, they need to get the lights turned on. As far as I could tell, she just ripped the metal cover off that circuit breaker um, with extreme strength. Um, so another uh, superhero moment there. But finally, my science challenge, Dan, snow is water. I am not sure why Stripe walked around in the snow and didn't 
constantly end up in pain rolling around on the ground with gremlins popping off his back. So there is clearly something else here we don't understand about the water and how it works, or Snow would have just made a trail of gremlins as he walked around the city. Well, Snow is a more solid form. It is Maybe it's the liquid form. Maybe it has something to do with that. Uh, and I will tell you, I have trouble stepping on a cockroach. I don't know that I could have ground up a gremlin in a, in a Pelzer pulverizer. Uh, that would have been very difficult for me. Um, but Ben, did you have anything that you wanted to, to talk about? You know, I, I was very envious of the promise of some of these uh, ga- gadgets, like the automatic egg breaker or this uh, awesome orange juicer. You know, you know hopefully Mr. Mr. Peltzer gets them working uh, better because... You know, I think there's a real future in some of those, uh, especially especially having a, a better orange juicer than what a lot of the juicers out there are today. They're, uh, you know, I would like something you could actually just put a whole orange in and it would get you the juice. That would be great. <laughs> I, I think that that's true. I mean, th- there th- he's he's got a lot of great things there, and I hope that he he kind of works on them a little bit. I think that there's some a lot of potential there. You know, one of the things that I like from this movie is in when he's at the fair, kind of peddling his bathroom buddy. We see an H.G. Wells like time machine in the back that's in the background that seems to actually go through time. I'd love to know a little bit more about that. Uh, I, I I was curious whether a gremlin would actually blow up in a microwave um that was probably the most brutal scene and one i remember from from my youth as being a very pivotal scene in the movie and you know we talked about a lot of close calls with electrocution in our last episode there's a mogwai that sticks his finger in a socket and he almost electrocutes himself uh he you know he fit right in maybe he could be our fourth uh, fourth panelist from time to time i think he might have a lot to say but if we've missed anything else if you want to have a conversation with us you can find the show on twitter at f triple g bt pod or on facebook at f triple g bt but you can get in touch with us individually. Denon, where can people find you? People can find me on Twitter and Instagram. Just flip my name, at Denon Michael. And on Facebook, you're going to do at Prof Denon Michael. You're going to stick in the prof. Ben, where can people find you? You can find me on all the major social media networks at bseepser. How do you spell that? B-S-I-E-P-S-E-R. And I can be found on Twitter at Daniel J. Glenn, on Facebook at Analytical Mastermind, and on Instagram at The Daniel J. Glenn. So this is a perfect example of how responsibility is key to being a superhero or a supervillain. You know, Gizmo, that's who you want to be. He is our superhero in this. You do not want to be like Stripe, who is the supervillain. So remember that next time you play with water and furry animals. And until next time, thank you for listening. Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies is a Glencoe production and is produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and Paul Springers with music and sound design written and performed by Paul Springers. Now, of course, if you're listening to this episode and you've gotten this far, you're going to want to subscribe. Well, how do you do that? We're on all the major podcasting platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Spotify. But if you're not already subscribed to those platforms, I made it easy for you. Go to our website, ftriplegbt.com. You'll find links to those subscribe buttons and also links to our social media, both for the show and for our individual experts, the members of the Brain Trust. That's all right there ftriplegbt.com. And before you leave, don't forget to check out our other episodes. You can find the link at the top of the page for everything we've got, and you'll notice 
that we've got both a YouTube version and an audio only version, depending on what you like, we got it for you. And if you do like those videos, you can go ahead and subscribe to those as well. We're on youtube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn. And once again, if you like this show, you're going to like everything that I do. Go to danieljglenn.com to find out more. Thank you for listening.